It was actually pretty neat. Uh, this week, uh, when I said that last week, I had somebody call me and they said, hey, I just got to tell you this story. Uh, I, I heard what you said and uh, God put someone on my heart at my work and they weren't a believer, but I, I felt like I needed to go up to them and ask them how they were doing and just let them know that God is thinking about them and that God has called me to pray for them. So he was nervous, but he did it. And when he did it, he, the guy who was talking to said, you know, I'm not religious but it's amazing. My life is at a really low place right now, and I really needed to hear that. And so it's just cool, and I believe that there's going to be more stories, like there will be more testimonies, and I believe that God wants us to um, bring people into those encounters. So this week, we are going to end the series with the woman who is caught in adultery um, from John chapter 8, and we're going to be starting in verse 2. Um, because verse 1 wouldn't really make sense because it's really tagged on to the end of or chapter 7. So verse 2, this is what it says. Now early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commands us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted in their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Then she said, No, Lord, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have called every single one of us to not only encounter you, but to lead other people into encounters with you. Lord, I pray this morning, as we know that you are here with us, Lord, that we truly would encounter you through your word, through your Holy Spirit. God, convict our hearts, Lord. But Lord, help us to know that you do not condemn but that you just want to see us grow in our relationship with you to become everything that you've called us to be. So we're excited to hear a word that comes from you that could change our lives forever. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. There's some uh, questions that um, are age old in, in the Bible that we see and we wonder, and there's not really an answer. And so we know that it really, it does, it's not pertinent to the story or it's not pertinent to our lives because the Holy Spirit didn't um, go into detail to write those things out and exactly how they happen. One of those things is this story and what and why, why and what in the world was Jesus doing when he was writing on the ground? Um, There are people who think, well, maybe he was writing the names of all the animals who were the result of the fall and not in the original garden, like mosquitoes and wasps and Cats and dachshunds. And, uh, but right after that, what he says 
is um, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, in John chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Then those who heard it, being convicted in their conscience, went out one by one. Now, the word heard there, it'd be very easy to think it was just when they heard with their ears. But the actual word that is used there, it really means to understand or comprehend. So it's more when they got what Jesus was actually trying to say that they left one by one because they were convicted in their hearts. So what happens is they bring the woman, Jesus gets down, he starts writing, and then um, they say, what are you going to do? Jesus gets up, says, who, he who, who is without sin, cast the first stone, gets back down, writes some more. This is what I think happened. And there's a reason why I think this, but what I think is when he stooped down the first time, he started writing down sins. Different sins, and, and he was ignoring them, pretending like they weren't there, but he's writing down these sins. And then when they pressed him on it, he got up and he said, He was without sin, cast the first stone. Then he stooped back down and started writing their names next to the sins, and they're like, Oh, shoot. <laughs> Now, to really understand uh, why I believe that and, and what could have been going on, again, the Bible doesn't give us details, so, but this is what could have happened. Um, we have to go back into Jewish culture, and why would Jesus stoop down in the first place? Like, was he playing tic-tac-toe, stickman, hangman, or something like that? No, that's not what was happening. Um, knowing what had happened, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they bring this woman, but they've already violated the Jewish law, because what the law said was the man and the woman would be brought in to the, uh, the temple gates and be accused. What would happen at that point was the priest or whoever he was brought, they were brought in front of, would stoop down and write in the dust the law that was broken. And then he would also write the name of those who were accused. Um, now, I also want you to understand the context and the timing when this happened. Because in John 7, 2... Right before this happens, it says the Jews, now the Jews were um, at the Feast of Tabernacles that was at hand. So they were just, um, they were just in the midst of this Feast of Tabernacles. A week before the, the Feast of Tabernacles was Yom Kippur, uh, which is the Day of Atonement. And at the end of Yom Kippur, the priest would throw this big celebration because Jewish people just love to celebrate things, which is awesome. Um, but they would celebrate because God had accepted the sin sacrifice and all of their sins were pushed back another year until the Messiah came. And at the end of this celebration, the priest would stand in front of all of the people and he would proclaim a prophecy which was messianic from the Old Testament in Jer Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. And this is a word for word exact Hebrew translation of what would have been said. O Yahweh... The baptizer of Israel, all who remember, this is a messianic prophecy, which is Jesus is going to fulfill this. All those who leave your way shall be publicly embarrassed. And those who turn aside from my ways will have their names written in the dust and blotted out. For they have departed from Yahweh, the fountain of the waters of life. So this is Jesus coming down. These people, this had just happened four or five days earlier that this was proclaimed. Jesus stoops down, writes down the sins, writes down the names of all of those people who thought that they knew God, but were departing from him because they were rejecting the Messiah. And in their hearts, they're convicted one by one. Now, maybe he was drawing stick figures, and maybe he was winning a game of tic-tac-toe. We don't know. But 
it seems like this could be what happened because of, of what um, would have happened when somebody was brought. But imagine this woman and this divine encounter that she has. She meets the most famous church leader of all time. And the way that she meets him is she is hauled into the temple, a.k.a. the church of the day. And all she knows is this is probably the last thing that she's ever going to experience in her life because she's about to be stoned to death. She'll never have a chance to repent to her husband or try and explain what was going on or reconcile with him. She'll never get to see her children again if she had children. She'll never get to do anything like that. And the last thing that she will be remembered for in at her funeral or at her death, what people will be reminded of was this awful sin that she had committed and the shame that went along with it. This is where she is at. Imagine how shameful this moment would be for her and how much of a waste she would have thought her life had been. Yet she meets Jesus. She encounters Jesus and her fate is completely changed. And I believe there's some things that we can see that she sees in this encounter with Jesus that we have to see so that our lives can be changed by Jesus as well. Going into John chapter 8, uh, verses 10 and 11, it says, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, there we go, he, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus never condemned. Jesus was not a condemning person, and he did not condemn this woman here. And so many times we have this idea, or people in the world that we live in, in the spheres that we interact in every single day, we have this idea that God wants to condemn us, that his goal and his desire is to see what we're doing wrong and point a finger at us and condemn us. There's a uh, a saying I said a couple of weeks ago, which I actually got from another pastor. I didn't think it up. But what it was was hunters hunt, golfers golf, swimmers swim, and sinners sin. Um, the first time he said that he used this phrase, he was in the middle of saying it. And he said, hunters hunt, golfers, and a woman in the front row said lie, which was pretty funny. <laughs> swimmers swim, but sinners sin. Listen, God isn't shocked when sinners sin. Because they are sinners. But so many times we get shocked when we see a sinner, someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, sin. And we're thinking, oh my goodness, how in the world could you do that? Or why in the world would you do that? But God, Jesus is not shocked because he knows that sinners sin. Uh, Before I was a pastor, I worked for uh, Sprint and I worked in retail. And one of the years I was working for them, I won a trip to the Bahamas, which was a really fun time. So Michelle and I are on this trip to the Bahamas. We get off of the plane, and you have to take a taxi to wherever you're going. So we get in the taxi, and we both think our lives are now over about halfway through this taxi trip. Because in, in the Bahamas, they do not stay in their lanes. Like, there are no rules. They are going, and Michelle's like got both of her hands over her eyes saying, Dear Jesus, please just um, take care of my kids for me when I come to see you. And they just don't. I mean, you come to an intersection uh, with three lanes, and there's five cars and seven mopeds at the line trying to race each other. And it's this amazing thing. And you would think that there were so many, there would be so many accidents in the Bahamas because 
of this type of thing happening. But interestingly enough, the Bahamas has, have one of the lowest rates of accidents. And you know what, what country has one of the highest rates of accidents in the world? We do. <laughs> Why? It's because in the Bahamas, they expect you to go outside of your lane. They don't trust you. <laughs> They know that you're going to do something crazy, and so they're actually watching you. Where in America, we expect people just stay in your lane. You have to do what you're supposed to do all the time. And if they come into our lane, we just get shocked and freaked out. And then we get to the line, and we look at them and honk our horn and say, you must be from Texas. <laughs> or I was going to say California, but we have lots of Texas people here, so... Um, But this is why Jesus isn't shocked by this woman sinning because he didn't expect sinners to stay in the lines. And you can also see that Jesus never had a holier-than-thou attitude towards anybody. And if there's anyone who had the ability, actually the only person who ever had the right to say they were holier-than-thou was Jesus, and not even he had that attitude. So please understand that Jesus is not condemning. He is not condemning of you. He's not condemning of me. In John 3.16, one of the most famous verses, it starts with, For God, in John 3.17, it says the same thing, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. In John 3.18, the next verse, it says that we were already condemned. In Romans 8.1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Somebody say no. no. There is now no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you ever seen those or said or seen those t-shirts that parents wear sometimes that say, what part of no do you not understand? I think that's how sometimes I feel when I hear people who are talking about the word no and there is therefore now no condemnation because a lot of times we don't understand what no means. We get very sarcastic with the word no and we use it in the wrong way. We'll exaggerate with it. Like when my kids say, I have nothing to eat. And you're like, what are you talking about? Or when your wife looks in her closet and says, I have nothing to wear. And you look in there and you're just sort of puzzled and you're like, okay. But how can God say there is no condemnation? Let me read to you what the Living Bible says um, in Romans, Romans 3.24. It says, yet now God declares us not guilty. He has declared you and I not guilty. Now, it's very easy for me to think, God, thank you so much for declaring me not guilty. But you and I both know what the truth is. You and I really know what the truth is, that I am guilty, but I'm really happy that you were nice enough to tell me that I wasn't guilty. Can I tell you, in all seriousness, that is the biggest slap in the face that you could ever give God. Because what you are, in essence, saying is, God, you are lying. And God is not a liar. Listen, he could not declare you not guilty unless you were not guilty. And the only reason that he can declare you not guilty is because he declared his son guilty. When Jesus took our place and and all of our sins were placed upon him, that is the only way that we can be declared 
not guilty because Jesus was condemned and executed for our sins so that you and I could be declared not guilty. And that is what this woman found out that day. Jesus says, does no one condemn you? She says, no one. And Jesus says, neither do I. And I want somebody here this morning to hear that in your soul. That God declares you not guilty. Quiet your logic. Quiet the condemning voices that keep trying to tell you what you've done wrong. And hear what the Lord says to you. I do not condemn you. You are not guilty. Now a lot of us will think if we don't condemn, then we must be compromising. Because us in society, we'll either go to one extreme or the other. But look at the next statement. After I do not condemn you, Jesus goes straight into go and sin no more. I love this so much because it's not condemning, but it's not compromising. And we always have this tendency that we either want to go to one extreme or the other. And so since we don't want to condemn, we'll compromise in the sake, for the sake of relevancy. Because, you know, this is just our generation. And in the past generations, they might have had those morals or those beliefs or those ethics. But, you know, we have to be relevant to our culture today. And so maybe God's word isn't so relevant anymore. And so we need to compromise because we can't condemn people. So not condemning people is so much more important than not compromising. So we'll just compromise on the word of God or what Jesus says so that we can be relevant. But let me tell you something. Jesus was the most relevant person to ever walk the earth. It's really neat. In Matthew eleven nineteen, it says, the son, of the, man, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Hebrews seven twenty six says, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and look at these words, separate from sinners. Now notice the two phrases. He's the friend of sinners. He's not condemning. He's separate from sinners. He's not compromising. And when we do compromise, we lose our platform to witness when we need to witness, when God puts us in those situations to witness to people. Sinners love to be around Jesus. And a lot of times we say, well, Jesus loved to be around sinners. I think it's a better way to say sinners love to hang out with Jesus. Why? Because he was not condemning, but he also never compromised. Uh, there's a verse that a lot of pastors, we pretend that doesn't exist. We, we, a lot of pastors will sort of skip over this verse. They never want to preach on it um, because it just seems awkward and it seems hurtful. But Malachi 2.16 says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For, which means because it covers one gar- one's garments with violence. Now, please hear me. It does not say God hates divorced people. So a lot of pastors will shy away from this verse because what they hear is, and knowing that half of our society has or will come into a divorce, they they don't want to say it, but it doesn't say that God hates divorced people. It says that he hates divorce. Why? Because divorce hurts people. That's the point here. The point is that there's something that hurts people and God hates it when people that he loves gets hurt. It says that it covers your garments with violence. That there is violence in that situation, that it affects you, that it affects your friends, that it affects your family, it affects your children. And the reason that God hates divorce is because he loves us so much. 
It'd be the same as if Jesus, if God said that God hates drunkenness. Because why? It destroys people. Or God hates lying. Why? Because it hurts people. Or God hates pornography. Why? Because it destroys people's minds. Or God hates the affairs. Why? Because it destroys families. God doesn't hate the people. He hates the thing or anything that hurts people. And so when God sees a sin and he hates that sin, he doesn't hate the person. He hates the sin because he knows that that sin could destroy the person that he loves. We have to understand that God is not condemning and he's not compromising. But the reason that he doesn't want you to walk into certain things is because he loves you so much. That God is for you. That he is not against you. And we live in a world that has been convinced that God and Christians are against them. And we have to change that script. We have to flip that script. Because when we make a mistake, whether we trip and fall or we willingly engage in the sin, God still loves you and he hates what you are doing because of that love. That's what we have to tell everyone in this world as Jesus Church. That is an encounter that people want to have with a, with a God who loves and who cares. And the reason that he hates what is going on is because he wants to see the best for people's lives. The reason that he cares so much, the reason that Jesus looked at this woman and he cared so much and didn't condemn her because he was overwhelmed with compassion for her. In Matthew 9, 36, and throughout the New Testament, we see the great compassion that Jesus had for people. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. This woman is brought to him thrown before him, caught in adultery. And the only emotion that Jesus felt was compassion. He wasn't angry. He wasn't disgusted. Like we said before, he wasn't surprised. He just felt love. And he felt compassion. And that's why he did what he did. And Jesus won this woman over with his compassion. It says this woman was caught in adultery. Can, can I tell you that it's easy to think that you cannot truly repent if you get caught? If you come forward and confess, yeah, then you can truly repent. But if you get caught in the act, you can never truly repent. But I can tell you that I can go through the Bible and find story after story after story of people who were caught. And their lives were changed because they changed their mind about what they were doing. You look at David, caught as a murderer before confessing. You look at Aaron, the high priest, caught leading adultery. You look at all of Israel. You look at Peter, who was murdering Christians, is caught in the act. I've known people who have confessed, and then they go back to exactly what they were doing before. That's not true repentance either. They never repented. The point is that it's not whether you get caught or not. It's if you change your heart and your mind on what you are doing. This woman was caught in the act of of adultery, and I believe her life was never the same again because she met Jesus and encountered a compassion and a love that she had never experienced before. And I know that when you and I meet Jesus in our brokenness, when we can trust in him and sit before him and say, I've messed up, I've sinned, that what you, the response will be from God is compassion and love. And him saying, go and do it a better way for your life. I know that if Jesus is the same 
yesterday, today, and throughout eternity. What he said to this woman who was caught in her sin is the same thing he says to you and me in whatever situation that you find yourself in. Go and sin no more, but I do not condemn you. I just want the best for your life. And remember why he doesn't want you to sin, because sin hurts your present, your future, your witness, and it hurts those around you. And so God wants to have this compassion on you, not anger, because God knows that there's a better way for you. There's a a video that I watched this week that really, it got to me. It really hit me. And um, as we watch this video, I really want you to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Allow God to speak to those spots maybe that you've been hiding, those sins that you haven't wanted to give up, and realize that God has a better way for you. He has a better plan for you. But he loves you, and that's the reason why he says you have to stop because he wants to redeem you. Go ahead and show that thing.
that this is what happened on the day that this woman encountered Jesus. Her life went from sinner sentenced to death to forgiven with a chance at new life. And it's the same invitation that God wants to give every single one of us. The hope of Jesus is a life of redemption. A life that matters. A life of significance a life of health, a life of wholeness. No matter what you've done or where you've been, Jesus has compassion on you. He says, go and sin no more. Let me say it in a different way. Go and live life to the fullest. That's the offer and the invitation that God wants to give you today. That as you're thrown in front of him, as he looks at you as his son or his daughter, he loves, has compassion on you, and he sees all the potential, the reason he created you, and desperately wants to see you become who you are supposed to be. Would you pray with me?